0: So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to John chapter uh, two, which we just read. We're continuing on in our series in the Gospel of John, and um, it is—I wouldn't say an accident. Maybe it's providential that we're going to cover today this wedding at Cana scene, this transformation of the water into wine, this first of the signs that Jesus did on the day that we do baptism. Clearly, the connection there of water, of new life, of abundance is all there, and we're going to talk about these things and. Um, As we do, I want to set the stage here in John chapter 2. So remember up to this point, John in his prologue has kind of proclaimed that coming onto the scene is the Son of God, the Word of God who was made flesh. He's one with the Father, yet he has uh, been made man for our sake. And John testifies, hey, this is the Son of God. I've seen the Holy Spirit land on him. And then he starts calling disciples and they testify, hey, we found the Messiah We found the Christ, we found the Son of God, and it's ramping up. And so everything at this point has been, you got to trust their word. It's been the testimony of of John, it's been the testimony of the disciples, it's been the testimony of of the writer of the gospel, and now we get proof. Now we get the first sign of Jesus' ministry. And if you think back, um, if you weren't here, I'll recap this a little bit, that when we're talking about the testimony of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was like the front of the front, of the new weather system coming in. And I told this story about when I was a kid that there was this weather front that came in one day when I was playing and I remember it was kind of like a normal late spring day and then all of a sudden you could see this shelf of dark clouds across the sky and it blew across and as it came, the second when it hit, like I knew the moment it hit because the wind changed, it picked up and the temperature dropped about 10 to 15 degrees. When that happened, I knew that something new was happening. A new weather system was blowing in. And John the Baptist was the front of this new weather system, this new thing that was about to happen in the world and in the kingdom. But he wasn't himself the weather system. Like, he wasn't the Christ. He was the forerunner of the Christ. And here the Christ comes and his ministry, and we're going to see in this next episode of several stories, that he's bringing something new. Jesus is doing something certainly in continuity with what existed beforehand. He's a Jewish man. He's the Jewish Messiah. Uh, These blessings flow out of Abraham and his offspring, Jesus being the offspring. Yet it then opens up and becomes something new that's symbolized here for the world. We'll see this with the Samaritan woman. We'll see this with the conversation around Nicodemus coming up next chapter. Jesus is doing something new. And today we're also, uh, pause from this, we're talking about baptisms, right? So we're going to have to weave together here in our time uh, really briefly uh, how does the newness of baptism and the newness of what Jesus is doing at the wedding at Cana, how do they have to go together? How do they have anything to do with one another? And so uh, let's look at it. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So there's a, there's a big party that's happening. There's this wedding, and much has been made in, in, in different sermons and talks and stuff. You might have heard this, that at the time weddings were not just, uh, you know, I could go work out and go on a bike ride in the morning and then get ready at noon and then go to the wedding at three and then be home by midnight. It was a a, a long affair. I mean, this was multiple days. There was tons of preparation. This was a family affair, a communal affair. People might've traveled a long ways, but this was not like a brief celebration. This was a big deal. Now, there's something in the language of this first verse here, second verse here, where it says Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. The way that it says that, in the original languages, it was Mary who was there, and Jesus was, disi- was invited, and his disciples. And, and some commentators have made a big deal out of the fact that, like, uh, this, this kind of shows that Jesus was really invited as the plus one with his mom, and then this, these, this bunch of fishermen who really know how to drink wine showed up with him, right? And you can kind of see where Jesus shows up, and all these, these dudes, I mean, I don't know if they took showers, or they bathed in the Jordan River, or whatever they did, but they showed up, and um, maybe the amount of wine that you plan to have wasn't enough, right? You know, you got some guys that are like, hey, let's go, I'm part of the family too. And and they run out of wine, right? They run out of wine. And so maybe it's because of the disciples. We don't know, but um, I like to think that it was. I think it's funny. Uh, So when the wine ran out, it's not like, uh, oh, they were surprised. It's just when the wine ran out, which was inevitable, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. The symbol of celebration, the symbol of abundance and of joy, it's out. And Jesus, what are you going to do about it, is the implication. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Um, He's not saying woman in a pejorative and condescending way, by the way. We know this because, and I've I've talked about this before, at the cross when Jesus is dying for the sin of the world, he says, woman, behold your son, to John the the Apostle. So clearly not a pejorative reference. This is a way of just saying, like, they just said woman in a way that we don't say it. To refer to someone, okay? It's not pejorative. It's, it's actually could be considered a sign of respect. He's saying, what, what does this have to do with me? My, my hour has not yet come. I'm not, it's not time for me yet to be revealed to the world for what I am. But having the prerogative of a mother, she says, that's okay. <laughs> it's okay that your, your hour hasn't come. And the mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So in full confidence that he can do something about it, in full confidence that there is a, a, something miraculous about to happen, she tells the servants to obey him. Now, verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. So they would take these jars, 20 to 30, 30 gallons apiece, and they would. the rites of purification were before meals, before you traveled to the um, uh, temple. You would actually uh, have to ritually purify yourself and wash with water Before you ate, the Pharisees got pretty worked up with Jesus when his disciples didn't do this before their meals. And Jesus said to them, you're so concerned about the outward appearance, yet on the inside, you're like graves. You have your whitewashed tombs, yet you're like graves on inside. You guys are hypocrites. You want to wash with water, but you're full of sin. The water was meant to signify an internal cleansing that wasn't happening for some of these people. But this system of external purification is what is being symboled here. Jesus takes those symbols of external purification, of of kind of the shadow of what God wants. And they they fill them with water. Jesus said to the servants in verse seven, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. They're full of water. No way he can take 20 to 30 gallons six times over. Don't, Don't ask, I don't know the math on that. I should have done it before I came. I'm not gonna do math on the fly. But lots of gallons of water. And they came and saw, excuse me, he said to them, now draw some water and take it to the master of the feast. So they have these, these jars, they're filled to the brim. They take a cup and they draw some water. It's water in the, in the jar. Take the cup, take it to the master of the feast. Now the master of the feast, you know, maybe the, the dad, maybe it's the wedding planner, whoever. The guy who's like running everything and he's probably losing his mind. He's like, we're out of wine, I don't know what I'm going to do. The bride and the groom, they're, gonna, they're not going to pay the invoice. They're going to they're want 30% off. What do I do? I can't eat the cost of these these shrimp. It's not not in my budget. So, he takes a drink and he goes, "What is this? What is this? Like 19, you know, 58 vintage from Sonoma, whatever? Did you really save the best tasting wine for when people don't have any taste buds at work anymore? Right after the first two, it doesn't t- They all taste the same." Kind of situation, like they're having a good time and they're they're drinking wine together. And here's the best wine that he's tasted thus far, and it's what Jesus had turned from water into wine. And he said to him in chapter in verse 10, he says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This. The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Manifested his glory. It's a really strong statement. So here we have a pretty simple story. There's some drama. There's some fun mom and son dynamics going on. There's some fun like social dynamics going on. Jesus does a really cool sign. But is it really the water into wine? Like, of everything Jesus does, he manifested his glory. What's going on here? That feels like an overstatement from John to me. Do you feel that? Um, compared to like walking on water, compared to like raising Lazarus from the dead, compared to multiplying the... I mean, he, he, he transform, transformed that water into wine, but he actually just created new bread and fish at one point out of nothing, like to 5,000 people. Like, those are signs. I mean, this is really cool, but what is going on here? Embedded within this story is what we just talked about with John the Baptist, that there's this new wind blowing. And what Jesus is demonstrating... Is very very profound, and that the clue that we have here, see, John doesn't write anything on accident. The Holy Spirit doesn't write anything on accident, but John is crafting a story with specific specific verbal clues for us. Look back again. What it says in verse six: There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Why didn't he just say stick six stone jars? Because if, the, if if at the point of the of the I don't want to say trick, of the miracle, the sign is that he turned water into wine, then it's just 20 to 30 gallons is actually the important part because it's like, look how big this is. Look how much he transformed. No, but the important part here is that it was for the Jewish rites of purification. What Jesus has come to do, firstly, is to come in and to bring new creation and new life. And so really briefly, in the Old Covenant, When you came to God, when you came to worship God, you had to be purified repeatedly, over and over, every time you wanted to come to God, every time you wanted to eat your meal to become ritually clean, to become ceremonially clean, you had to go through these these rites. And they were never intended by God, the book of Hebrews tells us, the sacrifices, the rites of purification, to be a one-time-for-all fix-all for everything that ails the human condition. They were a sign that repeatedly reminded the people, the covenant people of God, that they were in need of God's mercy and grace every time they came to him. They were meant to be a reminder day after day after day. And it was what Paul calls in Galatians 3, a schoolmaster, a teacher who's reminding them day after day until when? Until such time as the final remedy for the greatest problem arrives until the one to whom all those signs pointed arrives, Jesus Christ. And when he comes in, he does away with the old. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, uh, um, empty it of its, of its meaning. He fulfills the meaning. He says all of that was really important to point to the final cleansing. Because what I'm doing is I'm taking the old water and I'm transforming it into new wine. I'm transforming it into the sign of, of harvest. Harvest. of of reaping what you've worked for, and the sign of joy and the sign of abundance. I'm bringing new life. And so the sacrifice that Jesus offers on the cross ends up being a final purification for the sins of the world. And so no longer are the rites of washing hands before a meal. No longer are the sacrifices of animals required. No longer are all the different um, ceremonies and rituals required to come into the presence of God or even to be clean in your everyday life. No, there is one sacrifice that sanctifies us for all, all time, and it's the death of Jesus Christ. And so he's signaling that now. See, he says, My hour has not come. What's his hour? The cross. He's signaling now, before the hour comes, symbolically what his death is, is accomplishing. And you know what, what flows out of the side of Jesus when he's pierced by the spear is blood. And in a lot of the iconography and artwork of the Christian tradition, you'll a lot of times have that blood flowing out into a goblet or into a chalice, symboling the new wine, the blood of the covenant. See, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that the new wine of the new covenant is enacted and the forgiveness of all your sins is accomplished. That's what's happening. He's symbolizing that with this water-to-wine transformation. So it's a sign, if we have the eyes to see and we have a Christological lens, we can see what he is doing through this. And so Jesus is showing us new life through the new wine. But there's another important point that I want to bring out here. Baptism itself is also the sacrament of new life. So how do we enter into that new life that Jesus gives us through his death and resurrection? If you turn, we're going to go to Romans chapter 6. It's just to your right. It goes... John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter six has like a really, really clear articulation of the sign of baptism of what's going on and how it relates to death and resurrection. And Paul just got done talking for five chapters about how the grace of God forgives us, forgives us of all our sins. And there's actually nothing you or I can do through our righteous deeds, through our you know, acts of purification, through our accomplishments to impress God, to earn the right to come to God. There's nothing you can do to earn that, right? He gives it freely so that you can come confidently to him. He gives the forgiveness and the grace that you need. But then he says at the, at the beginning of chapter six, what then? What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Like if every time you sin, you get more grace, in order to get more grace, should you just sin more? No, of course not by no means. And then look what he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, for new life to come, there's got to be a death. The call to come and have new life is also a call to die. Look what he says, do you not know, look at verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might what? Walk in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. This call to new life requires a death so that we can then be raised to a life that wasn't ours to begin with. It's not just Uh, the gospel is not that you were kind of bad and God made you good. The gospel is not that you were a little bit off course and he just kind of corrected you by 13 degrees. The gospel is not that you're really talented and God is is here for your self-actualization. The good news of Jesus Christ through God is that you were dead. I was dead in sin. And through Christ, he made me alive. It's good news because it's a miracle of new life, to those who had no power, no ability, no right to find the life that God had for them, and yet he gave it. And so in the ancient rites of baptism, I love how this, and we've talked about this before too, that they would have, uh, and we, we've discovered this in the second and third century Roman churches, where they would have a, um, basically a dump tank for baptis- baptism, and it'd have steps on one side and steps on the other, and it would be shaped like a cross, and it was large enough for two people. They'd have the one baptizing and the one being baptized, and this is why they had Female deacons at the time too for women, and they would they would turn away from they would turn away from the, the the tank and face west, right where the sea was symbolically, and evil, and they would say, we're about to do this today. I renounce the world. I renounce the flesh and all of its passions. I renounce the devil. I renounce sin. I renounce all these things. The old water. I'm dying. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And they would turn around, they'd take off their clothes and get in the water and be baptized. And then they'd come out and they'd walk out the other way facing east, the direction the sun rises, the direction that Jesus will come into the new Jerusalem one day from the Mount of Olives. And they would say, I commit to following Jesus Christ. And they'd put on a white robe. We do some of this here today. It's not as dramatic. We don't have a trough, but We do. We renounce, and then we turn. Because what's happening? There's two ways. There's not this like gray. There's the way of death, and there's the way of life. And we're all born on the way of death, and Christ brings us out into the way of life. And this is the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. And so here at the wedding of Cana, and here in baptism, is shown for us that Christ has accomplished what no one could do for themselves. He has put away the old, and he has offered He has accomplished the means, he has accomplished the new, and he has offered the new to those who would receive it by faith. And so once you've come out in faith, you then walk in newness of life. And just like the servants who filled up the the jars, we obey and we do what he says because he saved us. I have three more points written down to preach on. I'm not gonna do that. We're gonna stop. just to let you in on how it it works up here a little bit. Um, There's so much, we could talk about obedience, we could talk about the kingdom abundance, that there's more wine than they're ever gonna need to drink at the rest of that party, that there's this joy, there's community involved. All this is happening. We do this together as a community and I pray that today, in closing, I pray that today, if you don't know the new life of Jesus Christ, that you would put your faith in Jesus Christ and that you would find it. And if you've been baptized, into Jesus Christ. You have put your faith in Jesus Christ, yet you're walking like the old life? Don't. Turn away. Turn away from the old life. Put away the things that, that's because that's just slavery. That's just captivity. Come out the other side and walk in newness of life, enjoying the new wine of God's kingdom. To the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.